If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 123124. Excludes tax must update rewards. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we've got another lecture from our History Weekend events last autumn. In this talk, recorded at our Winchester History Weekend in 2019... Historian and author Dan Jones is talking about his new book, Crusaders, an epic history of the wars for the Holy Land. While we're not currently holding live events, we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures beginning on the 3rd of September. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thank you all for coming out tonight uh, to see me. Um, Doing this uh, talk about the Crusades, this is, is part of my uh, Crusaders book tour. In fact, it's, um, it's day 62 of Crusaders book tour. Um, and in, in Crusade terms, I'm afraid to say that's the bit at which we've all been slaughtered by the Turks. Uh, I'm pretty much the only one left on my way home to make up a load of lies about what I've achieved and uh, how well it's gone. Um, probably suffer from PTSD. Um, 
It's been really good going around talking about the Crusades, but there's one question that people have asked me uh, a few times, and it's a, it's, a, it's a legitimate question, which is why write another book about the Crusades? I mean, not by me, but there's a whole pile, a sort of virtual pile of great books that have been written about the Crusades over the years. Go back to Stephen Runciman in the 1950s, a great three-volume history of the Crusades. In some ways, the first great modern history of the Crusades. In other ways, the last great medieval chronicle of the Crusades. In more recent times, we had Chris Tyman, Jonathan Phillips, Tom Asbridge, Paul Cobb, have all written wonderful sort of big histories of crusading. Why add another one to that giant pile of books about the Crusades? And I think that's a fair question. And, and it has, I suppose, two answers. The first answer is, is to say that the word crusade is still a very important and sort of ubiquitous uh, presence in English vernacular, in English media, in, in the English language, full stop. And I've got a, a sort of proof of that. I've set up a Google alert that comes to my phone at 5.30 every day. And it's for the words danger. It's for the words the crusades. Sorry. For the words the crusades. Um, <laughs> ho, ho. And it comes up with some amazing stuff. So yesterday evening, it's, uh, it told me that the Burnley manager, Sean Dyche, Burnley football club manager, Sean Dyche, uh, felt he'd been unfairly criticised by other football managers for being on an anti-diving crusade. And if you think about that, it's kind of weird. Like, what would Jesus Christ want you to go and fight and kill other human beings for? Is it really premiership footballers uh, simulating injury? I don't know. I don't know. Um, we often hear Greta Thunberg described as the leader of a children's crusade. These people are described as uh, climate change crusaders. Okay, look, I could fill up the next 45 minutes to an hour with more specious and, and fatuous examples of people misusing uh, in hilarious uh, or just silly ways the word crusade. And uh, I think on the last date that I do, I'm just going to do that. That's going to be the whole talk. Um, but, of course, it's not just silly or fatuous or facetious examples, because the word crusade has been abused and misused uh, and twisted by certain groups for more pernicious reasons. And you only have to look at, let's say, the propaganda of the alt-right to see this. If you go on the Daily Stormer, the sort of online news sheet for the alt-right, white supremacists, the extreme right, uh, the masthead just has a sort of Templar knight, Richard the Lionheart type, with a sword in his hand, and the words deus vult kind of emblazoned across it. God wills it, the, the catch call of the first crusaders. Uh, any, there have been multiple examples in this country of uh, attacks on mosques by sort of EDL and further and more far-right uh, organizations, which have been branded as, in some ways, sort of petty crusades. In the United States, in Kansas earlier this year, three men were sentenced to a grand total of 83 years in prison uh, for plotting Timothy McVeigh-style car bombings and assault rifle attacks on uh, on an apartment block and mosque which housed Somalian refugees, Muslim refugees into the United States. You know, we, there are tons of examples of this. By the same token, if, uh, if you'd gone reading the ISIS propaganda uh, and a news, news reporting of uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's death uh, when cornered by American special forces earlier this week or last week, whenever it was, you'd have seen 
multiple references throughout to the Crusaders. The Crusaders this, the Crusaders that, the Crusaders think they've got Baghdadi, maybe they have, maybe they haven't, that's what these people are saying. Um, even if he is dead, the Crusaders have still got, you know, problems coming their way because we're going to go to war against the Crusaders. The Crusaders, the Crusaders, the Crusaders. That means the West. People in the West are citizens of the Crusader coalition and the American president, the French president, the British prime minister are the commanders-in-chief, the leaders of the Crusader coalition. They are the Crusaders-in-chief. Okay, so, so this word Crusaders is, is there in silly ways and it's there in serious ways. It's important to international politics. It's important to the way we live our lives. Children killed in the Ariana Grande concert by suicide bombers were called citizens of the Crusader coalition. It's serious and it still matters. The other reason to write this book in particular about Crusaders rather than the Crusades can be summed up with reference simply to that second R in the word Crusaders. Because the book that I've written about the Crusades, um, I think differs from most other books that have been written about the Crusades because it proceeds by a, a set of what I call what is known as viewpoint chapters. Now, this is a technique that's most commonly used in fiction and historical fiction in particular. Or if you think of uh, the Game of Thrones books by George R. R. Martin, they proceed in this way. You take a single chapter and you take the viewpoint of one character or sometimes a small group of characters, but usually one character, and you find your way through this slice of the story through this person's perspective. It's a very effective storytelling technique in fiction, and it's a very effective storytelling technique, which is what I want to argue for, for much of the rest of tonight, in history as well. And it's a particularly, particularly effective way to get you through the medieval crusades. Because what we're talking about is 400 years between the end of the 11th century and the end of the 15th century, let's say the 1090s through the 1490s, in which there is a massive variety of people involved in this phenomenon, which we call crusading. Now, very often, books that we read, particularly in the West about crusading, take the viewpoint of a single type, if you like. And that I, I, I sort of slightly facetiously describe, but only slightly, as the dead white Frenchman with a long beard and a pointy sword. It's a Richard the Lionheart type, right? It's the Templar Knight. It's the, it's the Crusader we've seen in the Robin Hood films. It's the Crusader. If you shut your eyes and think of a Crusader, should you, should you do that as you go to sleep tonight? That's what we're thinking of. And yet, over the 400 years of the medieval Crusades, it wasn't just white French men with big beards and swords who were involved in the Crusades. This was a phenomenon that took in people from Ireland in the west to Mongolia in the east. That's a reversed view. Ireland in the west, Mongolia in the east. This is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just Latin, Frankish Christians who are involved in the Crusades. It's Eastern Christians, Greek Christians, Armenian Christians, Syrian Christians, Jewish people, Arabs, Turks, Kurds, Sunni and Shia Muslims, pagans in the Baltic, heretics in the south of France, men and women, children. This is, this is a a phenomenon that affects a massive range of people. And we can only understand crusading if we see it through these multiple perspectives of all these different people. And so the way that I've tried to write about the crusades and the way I want to talk about the crusades tonight is by reference to a range of these different people. And, and what I've tried to do in the book over the 27 chapters of the book is to tell their stories and sit them next to each other from a wide variety of perspectives so that they talk to each other over the course of the book and they tell us a story of crusading that's pluralist, that's, for want of a better word, diverse, that's more interesting than the way we normally hear this story. 
So what I'd like to do now is introduce you to some of the Crusaders that I've written about in the book. And the best place to start, as usual with history, is the beginning. What's the way we normally begin the story of the Crusades? Well, it's this. It usually starts at a very specific place, a very specific time with a very specific person. That person's Urban II, Cluniac, monk who'd become Pope. The place is Clermont in France. The year is 1095. What happens? Well, Urban II stands up and gives a great sermon. He preaches the First Crusade to an audience almost as big as this one tonight uh, at Clermont. And he says, Christian soldiers fighting men, and it is men of the Latin West, let us rise up together, gather together armies, and march to the east. We're going to go to the east because we're going to go to the aid of the Byzantine emperor, Alexius Komnenos. Byzantine emperor, the emperor in Constantinople, the heir to the, the last of the Roman emperors, the sort of great, the leader of the Christian world of the East, if you like. Alexius Komnenos had written to the Pope, had written letters to the West saying, please come and help me because Turkic warlords, Muslim Turkic warlords are invading my lands in Asia Minor, broadly speaking, modern Turkey. Please come and help me kick them out. It's a good Christian thing to do. And Urban II says at Clermont, this is what we've got to go and help out uh, Alexius Komnenos. And we're, then we're going to, so we're going to go to Constantinople and we're going to march from Constantinople on to Jerusalem. Because rumours have been whipping around Europe in the 1090s with, with some sort of grains of, of fact beneath them that the Christian holy sites in and around Jerusalem, particularly the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the church built over Christ's empty tomb, had been desecrated by the Muslim rulers of Jerusalem and that Christians in Jerusalem had been terribly mistreated and tortured and abused and so on and so forth. So Urban says, right, we're going to go to Constantinople, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And he offers a spiritual deal, a spiritual calculus. He says, if you mark yourself out as a member of this army of Christ, if you mark yourself with the cross, if you become crucis ignati, a crusader, someone marked with a cross, you do this, then I will grant you remission of sins. If you confess your sins, they'll be forgiven you. Passage to heaven will be uh, appropriately and accordingly faster. So this is a deal offered at Clermont. Everyone shouts, Deus Volt, Deus Volt, and off, and off they go. So, okay, so that's the story we normally hear about the beginning of crusading, right? In fact, it's a story that you've probably been drumming your, your feet on the floor thinking, yeah, yeah, I've heard all that before. You have heard all that before, almost certainly, if you know anything about the crusades. For me, that's Okay, that's a story we all know. Is it the right place to start a story about crusading? I'm not sure that it is. And so when I started writing Crusaders, I started to look for the place, a different place that we could, we could tell this, we could begin this story. And I thought, well, instead of looking at all the Frankish, Latin, French, Western sources that almost all tend to start with urban, what if we looked at the sources that tell us what it looked like for the crusade to be coming towards you? What if we go and look at the Islamic sources in particular written about the Near and Middle East? Now, if you go to these sources, you see a very different story told. And a particularly interesting source to look at is the chronicle of Ibn al-Athir, an Iraqi chronicler writing in the 13th century. He wrote a massive chronicle of world history. He called it the perfect work of history, which is now superseded. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> Uh, Ibn al-Athir wrote the perfect work of history, right? Now, most of this is concerned with events in the Islamic world. But, you know, when you get to the 12th and, and 13th century, i.e. his lifetime and the generations before, Ibn al-Athir is concerned somewhat with the Franks, God curse them, as he always writes, who, who arrive in the Near East and set up these crusader states and are a sort of annoyance as much as anything. 
So he writes about the origins of, of what we call crusading. But he doesn't start his story with Urban II at Claremont. He starts his story in Sicily. He tells a story that is his origin story of crusading. And it's a very interesting story because it, tells us a totally, it gives us a totally different perspective on how this phenomenon began. And he says, if you want to understand where crusading came from, you look at Sicily and you look at one person in particular, Count Roger of Sicily, a Norman. Now, Count Roger of Sicily and his brother, Robert Giscard, were both Normans, and they arrived in southern Italy, in Sicily, from the 1060s. Now, when we think about the 1060s and the Normans, we normally think Norman conquest, right? William the Conqueror coming to England. But of course, at that time, the Normans were getting around and about across the whole of, uh, of Europe. And one of the places they particularly got to was southern Italy, Apulia, Calabria, um, heel and toe of the Italian boot. From there, in the 1070s, 1080s, they pushed into Sicily, which was then under Arab Muslim rule. Roger and Robert Giscard pushed the Arabs out of Sicily with papal backing. And then they set up, well, Robert Giscard went off to the Balkans to annoy the, the Byzantines, but Roger stayed in Sicily and established a, Nor a Norman feudal-style state over what was previously Arab-Muslim Sicily. Now, Ibn Alathir tells this story about Roger. He says, and this is probably to be located in the early 1090s, he says, or maybe the late 1080s. He says, when Roger was sort of settled and had kicked the Muslims, the Arabs, out of Sicily, he says, ambassadors came to Sicily from one of Roger's cousins up in northwest Europe called Baldwin. Now, we're not too sure who this Baldwin is, but this is the late uh, 11th century. And it's a fair bet at this time, if you're talking about crusading history, it's like 50-50, a man is probably called Baldwin at this point. So... Just bear with me on this point for a second. This Baldwin, cousin of Roger, sends ambassadors down to Sicily. And the ambassadors approach Roger and they say, listen, how about this? Uh, Baldwin, your cousin, um, thinks it would be great if he could go to North Africa, not very far away from Sicily, of course, and attack the rich Islamic-held cities of North Africa and plunder them and take them over and, and take their trade. I mean, a great thing to do, a great Christian thing to do, uh, great, you know, great for all of us. Um, can we come down to Sicily and use Sicily as the launch pad to go and attack the rich Islamic cities of North Africa, please? And Roger doesn't say anything to this initially. He just lifts up his leg and farts in their general direction. <laughs> now, if, if you really know your history, you're thinking now of Monty Python. I fart in your general direction. Okay, you may have thought that was the sort of invention of the Monty Pythons and the Holy Grail and the Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam, John Cleese, Graham Chapman and all that, sort of sat around and ho, ho, ho. No, this is Ibn Alathir. I fart in your general direction. This is what Roger does. Anyway, when he's finishing that, he finally speaks. And he says to Baldwin's ambassador, he says, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Of course you can't come down to Sicily and use Sicily as a launch pad to attack the rich Islamic cities in North Africa. I've taken ages Conquering Sicily from the Muslims, thank you very much. A massive expenditure in time, in money, in blood. Taking all this for me to get here. Well, you're just going to march in and, and use my Sicily as a launch pad? Absolutely not. He says, I do very good trade, thank you very much, with the Muslims in North Africa. I don't want that disrupted. If anyone's going to conquer those cities, it's going to be me. But he says, but I'll tell you what, go back to Baldwin and say, if he really wants to go and attack Muslims in a nice, rich city, good for plundering, I've heard there's loads of them in Jerusalem. And that, says Ibn al-Athir, is how it all began. 
Now, what do we make of that story? I mean, you don't, you don't have to think about that story as a historian for very long to start picking holes in it. Like, when is this supposed to have happened? Like, what are these cities we're talking about? Is it Mardia? There's an attack on that in, in modern Tunisia in 1087. Are we talking about that? Not quite sure. Who is this Baldwin, really? It's not that clear. Did Roger really lift up his leg and fart in the general direction of some ambassadors? Or is this just a sort of trope that's inserted into um, Ibn, Ibn Alathir's chronicle because he, he wants to make Franks in general and Normans in particular look coarse and smelly and cynical and disgusting and just the sort of people you can't trust? Probably. Probably. But it's an interesting story for a couple of reasons. It's interesting and it's useful for a book like this because it's funny. Okay? It's great fun and it looks good on the page. It also takes you into the, quest, the historical questions about how much you can trust the sources of the Crusades. But it also speaks to a bigger truth about the origins of crusading history. Because Ibn al-Athir locates this story about Roger in a passage that also says, look, if you want to understand how the Franks got into Jerusalem in 1099, the First Crusade, it, it doesn't sit in isolation. He says, you have to look at what's happening in Sicily just prior to this. And he says, you also have to look at what's happening in what's now Spain and Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula. He says, in Spain, there'd been big advances of the Christian kings of the, of the northern Iberian Peninsula, who'd been fighting the Muslim Taifa kings of the southern Iberian Peninsula, Al-Andalus, in Muslim southern Spain and Portugal, as we call it now, Spain and Portugal, as we call it now. He says the Christians have been on the march there as well. And he, said, and he, he says that the, the victories and the, war, the wars between Christian and Muslim powers in these places around the Mediterranean, two things have been going on. Firstly, the Christians have been winning. And secondly, the wars seem to have started to take on a, a specifically religious component. That is to say, people aren't just fighting for stuff and places and resources. They're fighting because they're of opposite religions. And I think that's really interesting because it takes us, in telling this story, out of our easy way of thinking of the Crusades as just sort of emerging from the brain of Urban II on one day in Clermont. And it, it, starts, it tells us that this is something that's really a, a Mediterranean phenomenon that has roots in many different places and coalesces in the 1090s. And I think that's a really important way for us to think differently about the start of the Crusades. Okay. So Roger of Sicily is the first crusader in Crusaders. And this is the, the first chapter in the first part of the book. The book's divided into three big parts. Now, what does the first part of the book tell? Well, with apologies to Runciman, it tells the story of the First Crusade. The story of the First Crusade in outline is this. After Roger had done his thing and Urban had done his thing, quite different as they were, all across Western Europe, crusading fever kind of begins. And people are really taken with this idea of uh, remission of sins, the idea of the adventure of, of going to the East. The first wave of crusaders who rise up and, and take on this, this task of going to Constantinople and Jerusalem, are what we as historians call the People's Crusade. Now, it's led by sort of demagogues, populist leaders, we'd call them now, uh, who include um, Peter the Hermit, for example. Now, Peter the Hermit, fascinating character, absolutely fascinating character, who managed to whip up people, particularly in, in sort of Flanders and then in the Rhineland, um, to go crusade. Ordinary people, ordinary people, not warriors, ordinary people. Peter the Hermit's an incredibly interesting character. He's a sort of shabby demagogue, if you like. Very poorly dressed, very brilliant, very bright, absolutely able to convince ordinary people to do something totally contrary to their own best interest. People's Crusade, we call it. 
This is the first wave of crusaders. Now, they cut a swathe down through the Rhineland, attack uh, Jewish people in Mainz and Worms, terrible massacres because these are the first sort of, quote-unquote, enemies of Christ they encounter. Then they leave Europe by going, a lot, following the Danube, effectively, through the Balkans and arrive in Constantinople to see Alexios Komnenos. And Alexios Komnenos takes a look at this sort of shabby, uh, not very military organisation, you know, straggling groups of people who've arrived on his doorstep and it's a bit like, I'm not sure that's quite what I ordered, actually. Um, but in their wake comes what we call, the, as historians, the Prince's Crusade, led by people like Raymond of Toulouse, Hugh of Ermandois, um, brother of the French king, uh, Godfrey of Brion, Baldwin of Boulogne, proper military men, major counts and nobles from, largely from Greater France and from, Normandy, uh, from Norman Italy, Bowman of Toronto and people. They lead more organised military armies towards Constantinople. And in their wake come thousands of, of pilgrims as well. And they arrive a little after the People's Crusade in Constantinople. And Alexios Komnenos is, is somewhat relieved to see them. He uh, welcomes their leaders with open arms. He make, makes most of them promise that any gains they make as they march further to the east, they will uh, hand over to him because it's his territory they're supposed to be winning back. And then he waves them off across the Bosphorus into Asia Minor, like, bye guys, see you later. And I don't think really ever expects to see them again. He does see them again, because contrary to all expectations, these armies of what we now call the First Crusade battle their way right the way across Asia Minor, Anatolia, modern Turkey. They fight two major military engagements, Siege of Nicaea, Battle of Dorylaeum, 1st of July, 1097. They come out of Turkey, down through the mountains of northwest Syria. They besiege the great city of Antioch, and they take Antioch. They then themselves besieged in Antioch, and they fight their way out. Then they fight their way all the way down the sort of coast of Syria, Palestine, hang a sharp left and arrive at Jerusalem. In July 1099, after a short but violent siege, they take the city of Jerusalem. The city, the centre of the world, right? If you see maps from around this period, Christian maps, literally the centre of the world, the place of Christ's ministry, his, his passion, his death, his resurrection, the most important place in the Christian world. They take Jerusalem, Horrible massacres, terrible, terrible scenes are described by Christian chroniclers of the time as akin to something from the book of Revelation. Horses riding up to their bridles in blood, they describe. Holy sites are plundered. Um, people are massacred in their thousands, Muslims and Jews in particular. Bodies, stinking piles of rotten bodies left outside the city so that months after the massacre, it still smells so bad that you can barely approach Jerusalem. Nevertheless, around Jerusalem are set up four crusader states, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, County of Tripoli, County of Edessa, Principality of Antioch. This looks like a miracle. It should not, and, and rightly say, it should not have been possible for these armies to fight their way through great, such great hardship over such a long time and succeed, but they did succeed. And is that, this is the kind of culmination of the First Crusade, and it's also the culmination of the first part of Crusaders. Now, the second part of the three parts of this story begins in the aftermath of the First Crusade. And the, the central question of the second part of this book is, how do you deal with a problem like the Crusader states? Because once the First Crusade has succeeded, there's a, there's a big problem, which is that you can't then let, it, let the gains go. Jerusalem has been taken, and it will now be a terrible disaster if Jerusalem is lost again. It will look like God has ceased to smile upon you. The Crusader states that have been set up around Jerusalem 
now had to be maintained. So the story of the 12th century is an influx of men and material and horses and weapons and heiresses and uh, cloth and money and prayer and everything you need to survive going from the West to the East. It's an enormous job for Western Christendom to support the Crusader states in the East. Now, when I started to write the second part of Crusaders and to set up this whole new Crusader world that had been established in 1099, I was faced with a problem as a, as, you know, a writer's problem, which is how do you survey this new world? Now, the sort of the easy way out is the typical historian's way. I, the great historian, will write a sort of slightly boring essay about sort of the surveying the world, and, and you, the humble reader, will kind of yawn a bit and probably fall asleep halfway through reading it. Now, how do you do this in a way that makes sense of it? The way that you do this, I think, is you have to find a character who will take you through this world and show you this world. And so at the beginning of writing the second part of Crusaders, I went casting for such a character, somebody who could show us, not tell us, what this world looked like at the beginning of the 12th century. And the character I kept coming across, who seemed to me to be very interesting in this regard, was a man called Sigurd, King of Norway known after his death as Sigurd Jerusalem Ferrer. But I would only see fleeting references to Sigurd, king of Norway, in other books about crusades. And they would normally say something like this. After the first crusade, the first Western king to visit the crusader states was Sigurd, king of Norway. He helped with the siege of Sidon, then went home. And that, that, that's it. That's literally all you get. Like, who is it? Isn't this weird? Isn't this weird that the first king to visit the Crusaders... Well, actually, the first king was the king of the Isle of Man. Put him aside. The first king... It's true. The first king to visit the Crusaders... Is the king, this, is weird, this is something weird. So I went looking at Sigurd, king of Norway, and found that this was the perfect character to show us the Crusader world after the First Crusade. And I'll tell you a story, and I hope that you'll agree. Sigurd became king of Norway when he was 13. He became king of Norway because his father was called Magnus Bearlegs, South London, where bear means a lot of, people think he's a centipede. Not quite true. Magnus Bearlegs did not have bare legs uh, in that sense. He just wore sort of skirts cropped short in the British fashion. Okay. Magnus Bearlegs was a Christian, but in every other sense he was a Viking. He was king of Norway, and he liked nothing better than do the sort of classic Viking thing, which is get in his boat and go a plundering. Um, when Sigurd was 13, Magnus, his father, went to plundering in Downpatrick in Ireland. Have you been to Downpatrick in Ireland? Anybody? Mm. Do you go plundering? You don't look like a plundering type. Um, if you go to Downpatrick, even today, may I give you some advice? Do not go a plundering, because what will happen to you, almost certainly, is what happens to Magnus Bearlegs when he went to plundering Dan Patrick, which is an Irishman, hit him in the head with an axe and he died. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. He dies. Now he left, this is 1103, he left his kingdom to three of his sons, one of whom was Sigurd. They were all half-brothers. Now, it didn't take Sigurd long to realise that three kings in a small kingdom like Norway is probably too, too many. So at the age of 17, in 1107, he decided that he was going to sort of, but not quite, following his father's footsteps. He was going to go a-plundering. Uh, but where was he going to go? Well, as a sort of 17-year-old, a young king, he decided he was going to go where the real action was. And the real action at the beginning of the 12th century was the kingdom of Jerusalem. He was going to go from Norway to Jerusalem. And it might seem weird that a Scandinavian king is going to go to the eastern Mediterranean. Factor into your thinking that people like Harald Hadrada, also Norwegian, the third great player in 1066, had served in the Vrangian Guard. He'd been, a, you know, a member of the personal bodyguard of, of the Byzantine Emperor. There were links between Scandinavia and the East Mediterranean. Nevertheless, it's still a big undertaking to travel by boat or ship from Scandinavia to the Kingdom of Jerusalem. But that's what Sigurd decided to do. So in 1107, so the Chronicles say, he set off with 60 ships and 10,000 men. Could have been six ships and 1,000 men. It was a lot of ships and a lot of men. And they left Norway. And they went first to England, where they were warmly received. And then they crossed over from England to France. And they followed the French coast around the Bay of Biscay into what's now some Spanish waters. Stopped off at the shrine of Santiago de Compostela, one of the holiest sites in the Christian world, shrine of St. James. And they set off down the Atlantic coast of what we now call Northwest Spain and Portugal. Not Portugal then, but it was soon to become. At that time, you didn't have to go very far south down that coast to leave Christian-held territory and enter Al-Andalus, Muslim-held territory. And all the way down that coast, they did as good Christianized Vikings would do, which is they stopped at Islamic towns, including Lisbon, and plundered them and killed people and stole a load of stuff. And they carried all the way down the coast and they rounded the coast, down past the Algarve, through the Straits of Gibraltar, up to the Balearic Islands, also a Muslim Taifa kingdom. And they went a-plundering on Formentera, and they went a-plundering on Ibiza, and they went a-plundering on Menorca. This is like a Club 1830 holiday, like, gone <laughs> mad. And then he went to Sicily. Sicily again. By this time, Roger, Count Roger was dead. The kingdom was being ruled effectively by his widow, Adelaide, in the name of her son, teenage king, King Roger II of Sicily. He'd got a crown off an antipope, we don't need to get into that. King Roger's a teenage king, 
King Sigurd's a teenage king. They kind of party and they hang out over the, you can imagine this, party and hang out over the winter while Sigurd's ships are refitted and repaired and, and get, gotten ready for the, the spring sailing. When the waters calm down in spring, Sigurd and his Norwegian band set off from Sicily and they go to the kingdom of Jerusalem. They have a little look at Ascalon, which is still a target, still in Egyptian hands, uh, Fatimid hands, uh, still a target for, uh, for conquest. It would be later conquered in 1153. Then they go to Jaffa. Jerusalem's port, now the southern bit of Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv Yaffa, the clock tower is, if you can picture it. And they're greeted there, Sigurd is greeted there by the king of Jerusalem himself, whose name is Baldwin. People have been saying folk for some reason, every time I say, I don't know why. Baldwin, Baldwin king of Jerusalem, greets Sigurd king of Norway. He takes him in great pomp to Jerusalem itself shows him around the holy sites and takes him to the church of the holy sepulchre christ's tomb is and he gives him the best gift that one christian king could give to another christian king at this time he shaves him off a piece of the relic of the true cross the lump of wood that was held to be physically an actual piece of christ's cross shaves him off a tiny sliver of it gives it to him as a gift and they tore the other holy sites, you know, Nazareth, Bethlehem, and the rest of them. And then, now we get back to the sort of conventional telling of the story. They besiege the city of Sidon, now in Lebanon. And they take the city of Sidon, okay, and that's quite exciting. And then after a while, Sigurd and his men decide they've, they've sort of done Jerusalem now, and they want to go to Constantinople. So they set off in their boats, and they sail to Constantinople. And say the Chronicles, as they sailed, they'd by now taken so much plunder, so much gold and jewels and fine things, that as they, they attach it to the, the masts and the sails of their ships, so as they sailed, this stuff glinted in the sunlight. Sailed to Constantinople. They got to Constantinople, Alexios Komnenos, still the Byzantine emperor, greeted them with open arms, this is his sort of wont, fated them, held great to Roman-style civic games at the Hippodrome, some grand old time. And eventually, after a while, Sigurd wanted to move on again. So they swapped their ships for horses and they rode overland all the way back from Constantinople, modern Istanbul, all the way back from Constantinople to Norway. When they got to Norway, Sigurd still had, unbelievably, given the amount of adventures he'd had, still had his shard of the true cross. He'd said he was going to give it to a church dedicated to St. Olaf, the Christianized Norway. Instead, he actually deposited it at a church which is near modern Stockholm in Sweden. Nevertheless, he brought home to the kingdom of Norway a piece of Christ's actual cross. And he took up his crown, and ruled his kingdom. And after a while, he went totally mad and thought he had fish in his bath. It was really weird. Um, the trouble with history, can't make up the end. And there's no good way of ending Sigurd's story, story, right? He goes mad and thinks there's fish in the bath and eventually he dies after ages. But that's not really important. Like, set aside the end of Sigurd's story and think about how weird and wonderful this is as a, 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 a story from the Crusades. This isn't the dead white Frenchman with the pointy sword and long flowing bit. This isn't our normal vision of a crusader. This is something totally other. This is a recently Christianized Scandinavian king going on a big adventure. It's a great story in and of itself. It's exciting, it's, it's kind of funny, it's kind of weird. It's also 
absolutely brilliant and beautiful material for a narrative historian. Because if your job is to show and not to tell, to engage and not to bore, then this is the sort of character you need. And historically, Sigurd is, is, is brilliant. He takes you from somewhere newly Christianized, which is going to be important. This is Northern Europe is going to be important in the Baltic Crusades later in the story. And then he takes you to the countries that had sent so many of the first crusaders and catches you up there. Then he shows you the world of what's going to be the Recon what is by this time the Reconquista, the sort of second great crusading arena, Spain and Portugal in their modern terms. He takes us to Sicily, the sort of crucible of crusading. He takes us to the kingdom of Jerusalem. He shows us a siege in action. He shows us the holy sites. He shows us what's going on in Constantinople and then he goes home. This is a perfect character. And yet all he normally gets is two lines, helped the siege aside and went home. He starts the second part of Crusaders. Um, and as I've sort of intimated already, that this is quite a complex story that unfolds. And so uh, the way I pick my, uh, I've told you already, the way to pick our way through the 12th century, when you have this, this complicated story of trying to keep the Crusader states funded and armed and defended and alive, that's very, that's, that's, that's easily done or, or effectively done when you use characters like Sigurd and, and others besides. The big story over, the, over this, as well as the defense of the Crusader states, is of the Islamic world getting its act together. All the Islamic chronicles said, why does the first crusade succeed? Well, it's because the Islamic world of the Near East was totally fractured between the Sunni Seljuk Turks, who were themselves all fighting with each other, the Shiite Fatimids in Egypt, who frankly wanted a buffer zone between the, the, with the Sunni Turks, the whole thing was a sort of, Fatimid Caliphate is falling to bits in Egypt. The whole thing is a hot mess and it's just waiting for somebody to come and reunite the Islamic world of the Near East. So that, that, that's another piece of the story we've got to factor in. We've got to factor in the loss of Edessa in the 1140s, which prompts the Second Crusade. We've got to factor in the offshoots of the Second Crusade in the Baltic, the Wendish Crusade of 1147, when the nobles from Saxony start claiming Crusader privileges to fight pagans over close to home because they don't actually want to go to Jerusalem. This is a very, we've got to factor in the Reconquista, very complicated story. But as I say, if you focus on individual characters, you can get your way through it in a way that makes sense. Where does it end up? Well, it ends up the part, the end of part two of Crusaders, much like the end of part one, ends with a cataclysmic event back in Jerusalem, the kingdom of Jerusalem, and that's the Battle of Hattin. 4th of July, 1187. By this time, the you know, Jerusalem and the Kingdom of Jerusalem had been in existence for nearly nine decades. But the Islamic world had indeed got its acts together, first under Zengi, Turkic warlord, then under his son Nur al-Din, and then under the Kurdish general Saladin, Saladin, who rose to become Sultan of Egypt and of Syria, deposed the Fatimid Shia Caliph in Egypt and, and united for a bit under his own rule, Egypt and Syria, surrounded the Crusader states and started to squeeze them as hard as he could under the banner of Jihad. On the 4th of July, 1187, a huge army commanded by Saladin and various of his sons and, and nephews defeated on the battlefield a great crusader army led by the crusader king, whose name was Guy, weirdly. Um, <laughs> led by Guy. Crushed the army, killed in battle hundreds of uh, its finest fighters, Others were taken prisoner and sold into slavery or taken prisoner and ritually beheaded by Saladin's religious entourage. 200 Templar and Hospitaller Knights had that fate. King Guy himself was captured and the relic of the true cross, which had been borne before the army by a group of Templars, 
was taken, never to be returned. In October 1187, Jerusalem itself was besieged. Countless other towns around the kingdom of Jerusalem were also besieged and taken. Jerusalem was besieged. In October, it fell. And this sent shockwaves around the Christian world, and it prompted the Third Crusade, the Richard the Lionheart Crusade. Okay? It's an enormous event in the history of crusading, the loss of Jerusalem in 1187. And that sort of ends the second part of Crusaders. Now, when I picked up the third part of the book, the final part of the book, again, I was faced with this problem. The book was to begin, and does, the third part of the book begins with the Third Crusade. But the Third Crusade is the one we all really know really well. Like, it's the one you kind of think of if you think about the Crusade. Have you ever seen a Robin Hood film? Kevin Costner coming back from the East, okay, and Richard the... That's the Crusade we're talking about. It is Richard the Lionheart. It's Richard the Lionheart and Philip Augustus going off to the East, besieging the city of Acre, falling out with each other, uh, Richard and Saladin sending each other sort of like, you know, love letters and fruit and whatever and ice and kind of having a nice chivalric relationship, you know, which become mythologized almost, almost before it's even ended. It's Richard, you know, Richard almost taking Jerusalem but just failing. This is the crusade we, we know so much about and, and are sort of hidebound by our vision of. How do you tell that story from an interesting and new perspective? How do you get a different vision on the Third Crusade? How do you tell it without using Richard or Saladin as your viewpoint character? That was the, the question I, I, and the challenge I'd posed myself. And much like with Finding Sigurd, as I went through my reading for this, this part of the book, I kept coming across another character, just little fleeting glimpses of this character, reference to this character. I think this is my favourite character in the whole book, so I'll tell you their story. Their name, her name, is Margaret of Beverley. And Margaret of Beverley was a Yorkshire lass. Try saying that in Manchester, don't recommend it. Margaret Beverley was a Yorkshire lass, but she was born in Jerusalem. Born in Jerusalem because her parents were there on pilgrimage. But she went home and was raised, as her name suggests, in Beverley. Her parents died, and Margaret brought up a younger brother called Thomas. And when Thomas was old enough to be packed off to a Cistercian monastery, she packed him off to a Cistercian monastery to become a monk. And then Margaret, somewhat older, decided to go on what we would now call a gap year. Hmm? <laughs> she decided, this is what she does. She decides, I'm going to go back to the city of my birth. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. That's what she does. She goes, on, she goes on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But she doesn't pick her moment very well because she goes to Jerusalem in 1187. The Battle of Hattin is lost. Jerusalem is besieged by Saladin's Ayyubid army. Ayyubid after Saladin's father, Ayyub. Margaret's in Jerusalem when the besiegers arrive outside the walls. Now, Jerusalem's garrison was threadbare at this point because most of them had been in King Guy's army and were either dead or enslaved. So it was every man and woman to the walls of Jerusalem. And so Margaret, we know from the account of her life, fought on the walls of Jerusalem. With a slingshot, she was throwing stones at the head, the heads of Saladin's soldiers. On her own head, she was wearing a saucepan as a helmet. So protecting herself with a, a borrowed, like, it's not quite clear whether it's, it's chain ma mail armour or, you know, breastplate, but she had rudimentary armour. She was almost killed 
when a rock the size of a millstone was thrown from a trebuchet, hit the walls where she was fighting, <laughs> shattered, and she was injured by shrapnel. But she got prompt medical attention and she survived. And she survived when the city fell. Now, when the city fell in 1187, unlike in 1099, when it fell to the first Crusaders, when it fell in 1187 to Saladin, Saladin cut a deal with Bailey of Ibalan, who was leading the defence, and allowed Christians in the city not to be massacred, but to buy their freedom for a reasonable price and leave. And that's what Margaret did. She bought, a, she bought her own freedom and she left Jerusalem. Unfortunately, poor old Margaret, unfortunately for Margaret, she left Jerusalem and within six kilometres, she was kidnapped. Ooh, right? <laughs> well, that funny. <laughs> she was kidnapped. Not very nice for her, actually. She was kidnapped and she was enslaved. For 15 months, she was enslaved. Through two winters and a brutally hot summer, she was forced to work. She said she was beaten with sticks if she refused. She said she cried such bitter tears that her chains rusted. Did they? Don't know. But it was clearly a very, very bad time for her. Margaret was enslaved for 15 months. And she was only freed because a wealthy merchant from the Christian city, Christian held city of Tyre, also now in Lebanon, like Sidon, as a magnanimous and pious gesture to celebrate the birth of a son, bought and freed some slaves. It's a pious act. Good for Margaret, in a sense, because she was bought and freed. But bad in another sense, because by this time, the Third Crusade had arrived. Richard had arrived, and he'd been by Sicily and Cyprus and conquered Cyprus and arrived at the Siege of Acre and fallen out with Philip Augustus and was now fighting against Saladin at Acre and then, and then down the coast. The Kingdom of Jerusalem was effectively a war zone. So here's Margaret, now freed, but now unfed, forced to wander around a war zone, begging for scraps in only the clothes she stood up in. She was a sort of harrowing account of this in the account of her life. And so while Richard was besieging Acre and falling out of Philip Augustus and massacring thousands of Muslim hostages on the plains outside Acre and then marching down the coast and cutting into Jerusalem and nearly taking it and then going back to Jaffa and having a big fight in Jaffa and then going to Jerusalem and nearly taking it and then cutting a deal with Saffordin that's like, mm, well, let's just go home. Margaret is wandering around begging, trying to survive, but she does survive. She survives. All of that. And when the Third Crusade leaves, you know, Richard to be shipwrecked and off in prison in the Holy Roman Empire and all that, Margaret takes a ship home. She gets back to Western Europe. And she tracks down her little brother Thomas in his Cistercian monastery. And together, they write down her story. That's a better story than the fish in the bathtub, right? That's a better ending. <laughs> Of course, it's a better ending. But what a story either way. What a different way to look at the Third Crusade. What different eyes to see it through. This is the Third Crusade. You know, Richard and Saladin, the most macho, kind of willy-waving crusade of them all. Right? And the churchy tiles and jousting with it. Yeah. This is a man's crusade. No. You can tell this story through the women of the Third Crusade. And you start with Margaret. Once I found Margaret, I thought, who, who, how else do we tell this story through women's eyes? Well, of course, when Richard's on his way to crusade, he goes via Sicily. Sicily again. He picks up in Sicily his sister, Joan or Joanna of Sicily, you know, one of the younger daughters of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, one of his sisters. 
She'd been the queen of Sicily, her husband had died, she was widowed, husband's cousin Tancred had taken over Sicily, and he terribly mistreated poor old Joan. Although not like Margaret-level mistreated, he'd taken away a gold table from her or something. She was like, <laughs> I, can't I can't possibly. Richard Furious picked her up in Sicily, took her on his crusade. Of course, Berengaria of Navarre, Richard's wife, he married in Cyprus during the crusade. Berengaria, marriage to Richard, was a big part of the, uh, the split between Richard and Philip in the crusade leadership, because Richard was supposed to marry uh, Philip's sister, and didn't, and threw her over for Berengaria. When Richard was negotiating with Saladin through Saladin's brother, Safadin, Aladil, Joanna was used as bait. She was going to be married to Safadin, and they were going to have a sort of power-sharing agreement in Jerusalem because of the marriage between a member of Saladin and a member of Richard's family. Probably given the Nobel Peace Prize if it had come off. But it didn't, but she was a central part of that story. Now, you take all these stories, you take Margaret, you take Joan of Sicily, you take Berengaria of Navarre, and you tell the story of the Third Crusade through the women. You elevate them to the best actress category, and you push the men, poor old Richard and Saladin, down to best supporting actor. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful way of telling a familiar story. And that is the approach that I've tried to adopt all the way through Crusaders. But I don't think it worked anywhere quite so, so well as it does with the Third Crusade. Now, as usual, I've sort of whittled on forever. I'm not going to take you through the entire history of the 13th century in Crusading, except to summarise like this. From the Papacy of Innocent III, the beginning of the 13th century, Crusading detaches from its moorings. So it's not just about Jerusalem there, and Spain and Portugal there, and a little bit in the Baltic. Those three arenas keep being big Crusading um, theatres, but you also start to see crusading popping up all over the place. So we see the Fourth Crusade, 12024, led by Venetians, doesn't go anywhere near Kingdom of Jerusalem, even Egypt. They go to Constantinople, burn and sack Constantinople and loot it so thoroughly that if you go to St. Mark's Basilica in Venice today, you can still see the big bronze horse statues they nicked from Constantinople, 12024. Crusading to the Nile Delta, towards Damietta, you see crusading uh, against the Mongols in the middle of the 13th century. You see crusading uh, in, the in the Baltic, not just across the sort of river in Saxony, but in what we now call Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia. See crusades, of course, in, in, in Spain and Portugal. See crusades being prepared against any enemy of the Pope wherever they can be found. That includes King John of England. He had a crusade, there was a crusade prepared against him, although never actually launched, just before Magna Carta. There are crusades in the south of France against so-called dangerous heretics, the Cathars. Ooh, the Cathars, the Cathars. Vegetarian kind of celibate beatniks. God forbid they should get us. But there's a crusade, right? Albigensian crusade preached against the Cathars. Because in the middle of the 13th century, this crusade preached against Holy Roman emperors. Frederick Hohenstaufen has a crusade preached against him. A man who actually got Jerusalem back for a decade or so by negotiation. So crusading detaches. 1291, the Crusader states of the East are finally lost. They're crushed by the Mamluks, slave sold, Turkic slave soldier caste who rise up to take power in Egypt and Syria. Thereafter, crusading really just goes everywhere. So you get to the 14th century, you have John of Gaunt is a crusader. John of Gaunt is a crusader because he goes down to Castile to fight for the throne of Castile. And because there's two popes, there's papal schism, anyone you're fighting, you apply to your, your pope, and they will allow this to be a crusade. So John of Gaunt fought a crusade against another Christian king in Christian territory, 
for a Christian crown, and he called it a crusade. Came back with so much gold that he funded his son, Henry Bolingbroke's crusade. Henry Bolingbroke went and fought in the Baltic with the, the Teutonic Knights, called it a crusade. So crusading detaches from its moorings in the 13th century. The real question in terms of structuring this book for me was how, where do we end the story of the medieval crusades? And the last crusader that I picked, I think, ends the story in a, in a satisfying and, 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 in a sense, circular way. The end, for me, of the medieval crusades isn't 1291, it's 1492. Because in 1492, in Al-Andalus, the last Muslim ruler of southern Spain, Al-Andalus, leaves, the emir of Granada, abandons Granada hands over the keys of the Alhambra Palace to the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, and leaves for exile in North Africa, in Morocco. At, this happens on the 1st of January 1492. At the ceremony of the handover of the Alhambra to the Catholic monarchs is a Genoan man who in English we call Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus sees this happen. Now, later in 1492, we know what Christopher Columbus does. He sails the ocean blue. He goes and encounters the New World. And on his way back from the New World, he writes to the Catholic monarchs in terms that are so classically crusader, it's almost hard to believe. Essentially, he writes back to them. He says, you're never going to guess what I've just seen over there. Endless people to convert or kill. So much stuff to plunder. And after that, all of these energies... For 400 years, have been pushing to the east, always to the east towards Jerusalem, and suddenly, suddenly pivot and head west to the new world. I think that's a satisfying crusader on which to end. Now, I'll end this talk with just one, I promise, just one more anecdote. And that's kind of a personal story, but I think, I think this will bring us back to where we began. When I finished writing Crusaders earlier this year, it's Easter time, and... Uh, and so I took my family, I was a bit, I was like more horizontal than vertical, if you know what I mean. So I decided to go on holiday. I took my family, my wife and my two young girls, we went on holiday. We went to Sri Lanka. Beautiful in Sri Lanka. Oh my God, so lovely in Sri Lanka. Went to Sri Lanka and had a whale of a time, very relaxing, very nice. We were there on Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday, I was staying in a little surf town called Hikadua in southern Sri Lanka. And I got in a tuk-tuk on Easter Sunday to go to the supermarket and buy some beer. So I was going to celebrate the Lord's resurrection with a four-pack of lion lager. Got in the tuk-tuk, riding the tuk-tuk, down the road to the supermarket, and the tuk-tuk driver turns around to me and he says, have you heard what's happened in Colombo? No, what's happened in Colombo? He said, there's been suicide bombings. Churches in and around Colombo have been blown up by suicide bombers, as have three big Western hotels in Colombo. Got back home. Check the news. Of course, this is what happened. This is the Easter Sunday bombings in Sri Lanka. Hundreds of people have been killed, brutally killed, in suicide attacks on Western and Christian targets. Obviously, it's traumatic and it's horrible and it's, it's scary to be around in a country when this sort of thing is happening. It was, in a sort of slightly selfish way, Doubly scary and somewhat salutary because we were supposed to be staying in one of the hotels that was bombed like 24 hours later. So had there been a 24-hour difference in the timing of the bombings, uh, you would be looking at empty stage, most likely, because me and my little daughters would have been sitting in the breakfast room having breakfast and blown probably to pieces and dead. 
Now, two days later, the ISIS-affiliated cell who claimed responsibility for those suicide bombings put out their statement and, predictably enough, claimed responsibility for having perpetrated attacks on citizens of the Crusader coalition celebrating their infidel holiday. In all the time that I'd spent writing Crusaders, it really hadn't occurred to me in a serious way that I myself was or could be perceived as a crusader. And still less that my daughters, 10 and 7, ages not names, <laughs> could also be seen as crusaders and that that status merited death. But it does and it did and it could. And so what I want to leave you with is the thought that Although all of this is great fun, it's great fun, you know, people farting at each other and Vikings going a-plundering and women with saucepans on their heads throwing rocks at people. That's, it's great fun, it's a great rollicking medieval story, it's high drama, it's epic, it's exciting. It's also serious, because if we don't think about, continue to think about the Crusades, continue to think about what really happened in those times, whether we want to repeat it, and whether it's really appropriate for us either in jest, in idleness, or in seriousness, to keep talking about the Crusades and either acting as though they are or willing them to be happening in our own age, then all these wars will go on and on. Thank you very much. That was Dan Jones speaking at our 2019 Winchester History Weekend. Dan's book, Crusaders, an epic history of the wars for the Holy Land, is on sale now, published by Head of Zeus. If you enjoyed this talk, we'll be running lectures from our History Weekends every Saturday on the podcast for the next few weeks. And be sure to go to historyextra.com forward slash events for news of our upcoming virtual lecture series. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Anne Curry explain everything you need to know about the Hundred Years' War. (laughs) 